At the outset, nothing in this podcast should be interpreted as legal advice. Further, the views or opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent those of the university. Please email campbelllawreporter at email.campbell.edu for any media inquiries and third-party distributions. Welcome to the Campbell Law Reporter Podcast. This legal podcast strives to expand Campbell University's mission to lead with purpose by reporting with purpose. We hope to breathe new life into the dusty reporters on the shelves by reporting the content through captivating discussions. Our mission is to provide current and interesting reporting on legal topics affecting today's professionals. Listeners can expect to hear from various hosts throughout the year. Thank you, everybody, for joining us again for another episode of the Campbell Law Reporter. My name is uh, Stephen Dinkle. I'm your host for this episode, and I am extremely honored to have our guest today, Professor Michael Roca from the University of New Mexico Political Science uh, Department. If you guys don't know him, shame on you, because he is just brilliant, awesome teacher, so fun to, to learn from. I know from experience, and that's why I had to introduce you to him uh, via our podcast. Professor, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for that warm welcome, Stephen. And so, for all you listeners out there, Stephen was a fantastic student and always asking great questions and always <laughs> just like he will on this podcast, I'm sure. <laughs> and your your check is in the mail. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So Professor, can you tell us kind of a little bit of your background for people that don't know you and just kind of how you came into the role that you're in now? Sure. Well, I, I am yeah, I'm a professor of political science, UNM, and I've been at UNM for about 15 years. I study the national institutions, and my particular focus is on U.S. Congress. But recently, I've gotten a lot. I've really gotten interested into in money and politics, and in particular after the ramifications of the Supreme Court's landmark 2010 decision, Citizens United. I've just been fascinated by the growth of money, which I'm sure we'll talk about, Stephen, at some point today. You know, it's a 14 billion dollar 2020 election. It just blew away every record in the book. And a lot of that money is coming from super PACs and independent expenditures that we just didn't have prior to, to 2010. So I've been fascinated about the trends in American politics dealing with money. And I, mean, I teach classes in the, on the U.S. presidency, which I'm doing right now online over Zoom, which has been a heartbreaker because there's so many incredible things, so much, so much to talk about. Uh, but we're actually doing pretty good, I think, over Zoom. We, we're handling it pretty well. I teach classes on U.S. Congress and uh, at the graduate and undergraduate level. I'm originally from California and went to college on the Central Coast, did my undergraduate work at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, and I actually was a civil engineering major for about three and a half years, and I decided I couldn't cut it. And the class that broke me was fluid mechanics. I just couldn't do it. (laughs) I am out of here. (laughs) Yeah. So I changed majors to poli-sci, and I never looked back. I went to UC Davis, where I got my PhD, and I've been in New Mexico teaching at UNM since 2005. Thank you so much for uh, uh, taking the time out of your busy schedule. So with your background, so many things have been going on in the last four years specifically, but even let's even condense that in the last two years, one year with Congress, the House of Representatives, the Senate, and then how the president works in that. This is a broad question, but have you ever seen anything like this from a studying standpoint? Yeah, Stephen, that's a great question. And it's a great place to start, actually. One of the things that I've been talking to all of my students and all of my classes about, and we're really trying to come to grips with it, and I don't have tons of answers, unfortunately, but it is, but we do have some clues. We are going through, and we, meaning America, is going through a significant transition period right now. And I just, and it's always hard to recognize those transition periods while you're experiencing them in real time. But my gut is telling me when I'm teaching my classes 10 years from now, we're going to look back at the 2016 to 2020, probably 2016 to 2024 as a really pivotal period in American politics. There are so many interesting things happening in American politics that are defining politics, economics, uh, social in the social landscape of, of the U.S. We've got these really interesting, as an example, really interesting migration patterns happening across the U.S. and on top of it, immigration patterns that have been happening for 20 years that are fundamentally changing politics in particular states, in counties, and in cities. 
And it's having ramifications, not just at the local level, but of course, all the way up to the national level. I mean, look no further than the dramatic changes that we've seen in the last two or three years in Arizona. And, I and, literally you know, just in, wrote in, that in, down. Yeah, in Nevada and Colorado, Texas, there's some changing going on. California, of course, when you think about migration, a lot of people are still moving out of California. And I'd love to talk about that in a little bit. Then, but the, in, in Georgia and North Carolina, by the way, you know, mm-hmm. North Carolina almost went blue. I mean, this is, this is, and, and it's really, it's really easy to forget how important the, the politics of geography is and are right in that and that's so fundamental to understanding american politics you just look at a map and how much how a map has changed of the u.s not geographic not like the boundaries of states but how population shifts have occurred over the last 20 or 30 years and there for me is your story there's your story for 2016 to 2020 there's the story of a republican party trying to figure out what their future is is their future running to their to their far right to a strong white base that President Trump clearly was trying to energize and mobilize and get to the polls, knowing that that white base, demographically speaking, and as a percentage of the U.S. is shrinking, right? So you, and so it's almost like President Trump of the last four years was trying to squeeze that last bit of of advantage that the Republican Party has on the Electoral College out of those these last elections. But then you have the, the knowledge of, you know, Republicans are battling with this and they're wrestling with this right now, even like this week with whether, you know, you have Mitch McConnell voting against impeachment and then putting out a strong statement against Trump. Right? This is a guy who is is angry. Right. And he's also looking at the Republican Party's future and saying, you know what, the, the message potentially the message that Trump is sending is not the message of the future of the party. And we've got to start dialing it back a little bit, which then puts pressure on senators like Lindsey Graham about which and Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz about which direction they go. Right. So and, and the same thing, by the way, is happening in the Democratic Party. You know, how how progressive should the Democratic Party be? Is the Democratic the Democratic Party the party of Pelosi or the Democratic Party the party of AOC? And and the issues. My, I guess my point is, is we're, we, as we reflect on the last four years and we start to reflect on what's happening in the next four years, the issue is about geography and it's about migration and it's about immigration and it's about Hispanics moving into rural areas that are traditionally conservative. Republican areas and fundamentally changing those landscapes. It's about dot commerce who are left-leaning Democrats moving from Silicon Valley and going to Boise, Idaho, or going to Bozeman, Montana, and fundamentally changing the landscapes of those areas, right? And so that's, and that's what happened in Phoenix, by the way, and that's what happened in Colorado Springs. And so we cannot forget about the importance of those migration and immigration shifts that's happened over the last 20 years that has led us to this important transition period. The people think about immigration is they're always coming from other countries and in that simplistic sort of way, but it's immigration within our borders. Like yeah. New York, people are leaving there. Yes. Like, look at if what is it? The is doesn't it U-Haul? I think posts this is where all people are moving type of studies. And people are going out of California and yep. in New York in droves to yeah. Arizona, Texas, Florida. They're increasing people. So how many seats do you think will will be able to shift? Not necessarily from those states specifically, New York and California, but do you think there's going to be a big shift? It'll be the estimates that I've seen as far as, let's say, if we're talking about seats in the House of Representatives are very similar to what we've seen both. And remember, let's back up. We're talking about the 2020 census now. Remember, the 2020 census count is what's used to determine the allocation of House seats that each state receives. So if a state loses population or grows, let's say, less quickly than other states do, there's a chance that they lose seats in the House of Representatives because other states are either growing faster or, you know, or yeah, I guess growing faster is the only other option there. So the trends that we're going to, that I'm, you know, the full results aren't quite out yet, but 2020 is going to look like, based on estimates that I've seen, 2010 and 2000, where you had the Northeast losing a bunch of seats and the border states, including the West and Southwest, increasing seats. And the big winner looks like once again is going to be Texas. Texas is going to be, is probably going to pick up two to three seats. I think they picked up four in 2010. 
And New York is going to lose some seats. I think Pennsylvania was lining up for losing some seats. So you've got the North and Northeast losing seats once again. And by, and by they'll probably lose one, right? They're going to lose at most two. That's a big but difference. That's, that's a big difference, particularly when they're getting added to states that have been increasing population as quickly as they have over time, like Texas, as just a great example. And a lot of that, and, and so Stephen, what you said, you used a, you, it's an important word, is that, that those tend to, more, to be more like migration patterns as the economics of the country changes away from, let's say, sort of more service oriented or factory, you know, steel making, building cars, right? As the transition happens from this sort of this old economy to this brand new economy of dot com and, you know, this computer and intellectual property kind of economy. And then you think about all of these major dot-com urban areas like Houston, Dallas, Austin, San Jose, LA, San Diego. And you can now, now we're starting to talk about these small little towns that used to be small little towns that are growing in Montana. I mentioned Idaho and Phoenix as an example, Colorado Springs and Denver, right? These, these emerging economies that are driven by this new, by this new economy. And, and that's leading to all these migration patterns. In addition to then, of course, it's not entirely separate because the same economic forces that are drawing people from Northeast, let's say, to the South, are the same forces that are drawing, let's say, Mexicans across the border into those particular states looking for jobs. And so as the economy explodes in areas like Texas, you're going to see greater immigration in Texas because there's going to be need for more, let's say, low-wage low earners. And so then that's, and those typically appeal to, to immigrants who come across the border looking for a job to support their family, the land in a, in a growing economy. And suddenly Texas is different, right? Texas is just an example. And suddenly Atlanta is different, which is exactly what happened in Georgia. Yeah. And Texas not only being geographically located where it is, when it's creating so many jobs, it's just the place where it's going to happen because immigrants have so many places to choose from, that's where they're going to go. Because like you said, they're going to choose the, what's going to be the best avenue for their family. And that's just, that's why Texas goes, is going to change. And me personally, and without looking at any data, I think you could see the first arguments, not the first, but some other arguments of that was when the Cruz Beto uh, race happened and how that was a legitimate, yes, Cruz did, did win, but before the polls closed, people were, there was kind of like, Beto could do it like that. But that wasn't an option before. It was not in Texas. Not in Texas. That's exactly right. Yeah. And that, and, I mean, if you look at the data, the differences in between, let's say 2016 and 2020, what happened in Texas, there are these, and Washington Post put out a fantastic, one of my favorite figures ever is they have this, this figure on the map showing how trends between 2016 and 2020 changed across the map and they portray it like wind. So the, the, these, as the wind blows, if it's blue, it, it would blow stronger line would be the strong, the longer the line was for the Democrats, the longer the line to blue would be, and it's going to sway to the left or swing to the right if it was more Republican. And there in the pockets of Texas, it was covered in blue. And, and so in, in the pockets were Austin, Houston, in Dallas and the surrounding area. So these just pockets just transition blue and that's, and that's population growth and that's population growth, both because of immigration and migration. And again, you know, we're, we're focusing a lot on Texas, but that is, that's been the story. And that was the story of 2020. The story of 2020 was Georgia. It was in the same story in Arizona in Nevada, in North Carolina. I mean, you think about all those. And of course, and then the problem that you have in, if you're the Dem- on the democratic side is that if you're losing seats in Pennsylvania, and you're losing seats in New York, then you're all of a sudden losing influence and, and, and leverage in the House of Representatives and in the Electoral College of these like these really strong Democratic states. So it's not just benefiting Democrats. It's also and it's still up for grabs about which way, you know, in the next 20 years and which way the Hispanic vote is going to go. It traditionally goes to the Democrats. But but they, Trump did surprisingly well among Cubans and not yeah, surprisingly among Cubans, but Mexican-Americans, right? He didn't in Florida, exactly. The Cuban turnout in Florida was insane for Trump. And so you have in Texas, he won a lot of Mexican-American votes in Texas as well. So it's still it's still up for grabs of what, this, what the true ramifications will be on immigration. I tend to side with my colleague, Gabe Sanchez, who's an expert on this, is that it's, I think my guess and my gut and the data seems to suggest that it will help the, Dem- help the Democrats in the long run. 
particularly as you as Hispanics begin to move further north into these rural areas that are traditionally, because they're the last 10 years, they're flat out avoiding these gateway, traditional gateway cities like Chicago and New York City, and they're headed towards rural areas in the Midwest. Well, that's going to change the Midwest. It's It has to. I mean, I, I would think that and that's going to happen sooner than later. Yeah. And it, it, it only seemed logical to me that if people are moving from another area of the country to an area that typically doesn't see them, things will change. And so that kind of leads me into my next question is that like, this doesn't seem too to me too foreign because California used to be vo- like it voted Republican a lot back. What was it? The eighties, I think. Yeah. Right. And so like this happens. Am I, am I wrong on that? No, you're, no, you're exactly right. There's another really important message. And the important message is that, is that uh, for as much turmoil American politics seems to be right now and how much anxiety there is around American politics, how much fighting there seems to be, this is not new. This is not new. <laughs> I mean, the newness of it is really the social media aspect of it and how media has changed and how much we're, and how much we're actually probably getting blasted by it. And we'll speak to this another, maybe in a few minutes, Stephen, because I, I think this is a really important topic to return to because another newness part of it and something that I experienced in my classrooms is how different the worlds we all live in depending on where we get our news. And so Democrats and Republicans right now, particularly those who are attentive and relatively informed, let's say more informed and more attentive than the average American is, if you're listening to Fox News and if you're listening to CNN you're, or MSNBC is probably a better example, you could you could believe that we are in our completely different worlds. I mean, and, and actually, and to give Fox News and MSNBC, that's probably not the best example because they, as, as, no matter what you think about MSNBC or Fox News, they're still relatively similar on a basic fact, right? It's just, they have a different interpretation of these facts. But if you jump onto social media, you can go down a rabbit hole really, really quickly, as we've seen the last two years, where, where facts are, I mean, facts that we've held constant for 100 years, like the world is round kind of fact, right, is, are just gone, right? And they're debated. So like whatever the foundation is by which we come to our ideological or partisan beliefs, those foundations are could be gone. I mean, could be completely threatened depending on whether you're listening to a right social media outlet or a left, particularly when it comes to social media. But just to go back to my to the, my point here is that that's sort of the newness in all this. But all of these things that we're going through, that we're struggling with, with migration, immigration, income disparity, distrust in government, these are all things that polarization, these are all things that America, America itself over a 250 year period has always dealt with. Yeah, has always dealt with. And I and I think because of the newness of where people get their news, the just the technology advancing, like to me, Americans are way more, they, they have so many more things in common than what's portrayed, at least to me. I think if you get a bunch of guys, girls, everybody just to hang out, they'll figure out that they're all not that different. And, and I think just because of how everybody goes down that rabbit hole that you talk about, not everybody, but a lot of people go down that rabbit hole. It makes things seem way more toxic, which goes into is Congress doing their job? Things like Mitch McConnell having to look and and say not guilty, but then blast him or the Congress looking at we're going to censor and and remove this representative out of Georgia from her position because of this, all these different things, those probably wouldn't have happened without this advancement in how people get their news. I'm thinking. I, yeah, I think you're right. And that's to your first point. I absolutely agree with you. There's some debate in the political science literature over how polarized we are. If you were to watch Fox News and MSNBC and only get their, your messaging from them, of course, it's in their interest to make it sound like that we're in this big time cultural culture war and that Democrats, Republicans have, you know, that it's just opposite sides of the political spectrum and it's just a complete mess. But the thing that's interesting is that there's two ways to think about. And by the way, a lot of the time they use as their evidence how close the election has how close 2020 was or how close 2016 was. Yeah, I was just about to bring that up. It's kind of like no one likes to support a, you know, there's not a lot of attention going on. If it's a clear out this, these two candidates, it's a blowout. 
No one pays attention. They that's want right. that. They want that racehorse that's going to come out of nowhere. Yes. That battle. Yeah, and so the one. But see, there's two ways you can interpret a, cl- a close election. You can interpret it if evenly as uh, evenly divided or deeply divided. Okay, so if you think about a 50-50 percent, let's say just a 50-50 split in the in the national vote. I think Fox News and MSNBC wants us to believe that we are therefore a deeply, that's evidence that we're a deeply divided country. But the other way to think about it is that we're an evenly divided country. And an evenly divided country, if you think about, uh, let's say, if you think about a distribution, sort of a, a traditional bell curve, if you can, if your listeners can actually envision what a bell curve might look like, or it's called a, let's call them a narrow, um, a normal curve, narrow, normal distribution, where most Americans are in the center. If everybody on the left voted for the Democrat, everybody on your right voted for the Republican, that would be an evenly divided country that ended up in a 50-50 split. But if now if you envision a bimodal distribution, one where there's a bunch of Democrats on the left, nobody in the center, and then a bunch of Republicans on the right, that would also lead, and let's say assume, again, that everybody turns out to vote, that would also result in a 50-50 election, but be a, but be a function of a deeply divided country. So the debate in the literature is, how are we deeply divided or are we evenly divided? Most of the literature right now, I would suggest, is, is closer to your perspective on this. And that's where I am, that we are evenly divided, that most Americans are inattentive, that we're relatively inconsistent in our views, that we don't pay much. Yeah, we, we're not all that well informed. We might be partisan. We might be Democratic or, or Republican. We might even be an independent leaner, Democrat or Republican. But, you know, we're not paying that much attention. We might be socially liberal and economically conservative, let's say, or vice versa. The problem is, that our system is built, even if that's true, our system is built to advantage those on the extremes. Mm -hmm. So those who participate consistently in primaries, just as one example, tend to be the ideologically extreme who are the most attentive, who are your Fox News and MSNBC viewers. Yeah, and that's universal no matter what party you're running. Whatever primary it is, those are your people. They're voting every single time and they are your diehard. That's exactly right. So those, and they're, they're also the individuals contributing money and volunteering for campaigns, right? So in that, and what ends up happening is you have some states, of course, who have closed primaries, like New Mexico does. And independents can't even vote in a closed primary. So of course, we're going to get more extreme candidates coming out of these primaries. Of course, that's going to happen. And that's been happening since the 1970s. And that's been um, a, con- that's like a campaign strategy, Right. Primary. Run to the run to the the side that your party is. So Democrats left, Republicans right. And then after that, go to the middle. And so then and Stephen, this is where it comes back to your question about Congress. Sort of part two of that original question is that when you're a member of Congress right now, the thing that makes it so so such an interesting time to be in Congress and frankly, such a difficult and challenging time to be in Congress is that if you're running for reelection in 2022, you're not just running. Let's say you're a Republican. You're not just running up against a Democrat, Democratic challenger. You have to watch your back in your own base. And in one way, and of course, the way you do that is you appear to be more conservative, like more ideologically extreme in order to fend off a candidate who could outflank you in that Republican primary. But then knowing that if you go too extreme, then you're not going to be able to win over the moderate voter in a competitive election to beat to beat the Democrat. Of course, and the Democrats going the same, to the same problem. That yeah, the Democrats have to have the same the problem because of like you said, how progressive do they go? And is it the party of Pelosi, party of AOC? And it's this balance, and that kind of it's nice to know that we've seen these type of things before. And it's just recognizing the newness of how people are getting their information. That's how you as a scholar can recognize, wait a minute, <laughs> there's similarities here, and this is how we identify it. And that's the Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. Same thing happened at the presidential level, right? It's like, is this a Bernie Sanders party or is this a Joe Biden party? And so you have now Biden, and this has been, a, this is a really fascinating question for, and we'll, and we'll get back to Congress, I think too, because it's the same question for them. Biden is probably going to lose the House of Representatives in 2022. And that's usually what happens, right? That, well, well, not that he lose. Yeah. So presidents almost always lose seats in a midterm election. Yeah. Like their party loses seats. And when you have a five seat difference, I think it's a 10 total difference right now, which but it's a five seat swing, essentially. Yeah. And and you in your party typically loses seats. You're probably going to lose the House of Representatives, which means bye bye unified control. So if you're Biden, what do you do? Do you go bold and you big press. right now? You double down. You double down. OK, but one argument would be that you moderate. Right. And that's what we heard this week. It sounds like 
One advantage of President Trump no longer being in the news for Republicans is that now we get to hear more from Biden. And if I were Mitch McConnell, you know, President President Trump's, that's just one basic example we saw two days ago with President Trump's just response to Mitch McConnell. His speech, you know, President Trump writes this, issues a statement that just rips Mitch McConnell. And Mitch McConnell, he doesn't, I, I don't think he responded, but, but Lindsey Graham did, right? Puts all these senators on the Republican side in an uncomfortable spot. Well, do I support my minority leader in the Senate or do I support my president who's kind of still in control of the party, at least, at least for the time being? And the uncomfortable thing about it is that is that they know in in 2022 that if they choke if they choose poorly, particularly if you're on the House side, you could either lose the primary or you could lose lose the general election. But the Republicans don't want to be in the news right now. They want Biden to be in the news. They want Biden to do more town hall meetings, the like the sort of which that he just did on CNN, where he's talking about walking back minimum wage and walking back uh, paying down you know paying off student debt and maybe compromising on the stimulus package. And every single time he starts talking, not just because he's Biden, but because, you know, not, not anything to say against Biden, but every time a president talks, the more likely people are going to get turned off by his by what he's saying, just because it's just politics. So we're at this point right now where you say, you know, you double down, you go big, but Biden's thinking, I don't want to lose the house. So what I've got to do is maybe I can take some low-hanging fruit, pass a stimulus package, and maybe improve infrastructure and by the way deliver generators to, to the state of Texas and make a public big deal about it right that you know I'm taking a lot of credit for this for helping out mm-hmm. Texas those sort of low-hanging fruit should help them in 2022 but it's not looking good it's not looking good you know just based on what we know about every midterm election going back 100 years I think the only exception to that rule is the midterm after 9/11 I think you might be right so it would have been 2002 yeah that's a quick I, that does ring a bell and I think I think Clinton 98 too. Yeah. And so like that goes into my overall thing because it's a two year swing on a lot of these positions and everything is Congress broken or is Congress just being Congress? That is, that's such a good question. And it is such a, I guess a popular question is the right way to say it. It's a question that a lot on a lot of scholars minds right now and a lot of the public's mind for good reason. I mean, they, they have a lot of trouble passing things and actually come up in the last two weeks because of the uh, the fight over the filibuster, you know, if if you want to pass a stimulus package and you're not willing to bargain as the majority party with the minority party in the Senate, what can you do? You can either get rid of the filibuster, which is dangerous, or you can, uh, yeah, or you can get the. We've seen what happened when you get rid of the filibuster in one area, then suddenly you know dominoes begin to fall. But yeah, or you use a budget reconciliation, you get creative, you do these reconciliation processes that that then uh, and pass it through there. Congress, and here's my opinion, Congress might be slow, it might might be inefficient, there might be massive gridlock. I do not believe that it's broken. I believe that if if Congress needs to get something done, Congress will get it done. And by the way, you, we could probably disagree over a lot of us, a lot of your 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 listeners will probably say, you know, we need to get done on climate change, we you know, we need to get things done on healthcare, we need to get things done on immigration. That's absolutely true. And so, and I I probably, the Republican Party and Democratic Party both believe that things need to be done on those issues. The problem is what needs to be done. So the the disagreements that happen in Congress are a fantastic reflection of disagreements that we've been having for 250 years in America. How much control should the federal government have? How much money should we spend? Is this a state issue? Is this a federal issue? And these 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 are honest debates that happen. The problem that I have is that when... I guess when the debates aren't honest and that's kind of relating back to 20 minutes ago when we were talking about what the facts are. The problems are when you, when we elect members of Congress into Congress who just, who are just there to kind of blow the whole place up. And actually, you know, I'm, I didn't mean to be cute there. I mean, I, I meant figuratively, but we almost saw it two weeks or a month ago now literally happen. right? I didn't mean for it to suggest a literal blowing up, but that's kind of the point that we are right now in U.S. Congress is that I think generally speaking, it's a rep- it's, Congress represents the American public really well. They're stuck because we're stuck. You know, we have these divisions across the map that are reflected in, in the U.S. Congress. But the problem now is that we have certain members of Congress who, who are a product of the social media environment 
that say outlandish things just because these outlandish things might win them a primary election. Right. They and, have uh, no zero basis in the truth, right? Zero basis in the truth. And if you're rewarded for that, they continue to get, they'll continue to get reelected for it. Everybody, we're talking to Professor Michael Roca. Thank you again for taking the time to talk to us. We'll be right back and uh, we'll dive into more on Congress, all the jazz that goes along with that. And uh, stay tuned because uh, we got more to t- chat about with Professor Michael Roca. This is the Campbell Law Reporter. This is the Campbell Law Minute. I'm Stephen Dinkle. There are many reasons to pick a law school, and all of them have their purpose. But none of that matters unless you can pass the bar exam. According to the American Bar Association, bar passage rates are the single best outcome measure in assessing whether a law school is maintaining a rigorous program of legal education. Campbell has just that. Former Dean of Belmont Law School, Jeffrey Kinsler, conducted a recent five-year study of bar passage rates and concluded that Campbell is the fourth best law school out of 187 where students outperform their entering credentials with regard to bar passage. Remember, the school can't take the bar exam for you. What truly determines whether you pass or fail is your commitment to success and your preparedness for the exam. Looks like Campbell is doing something right. That's what I call leading with purpose. This is the Campbell Law Reporter. And we're back with Professor Michael Roca from University of New Mexico, political science guru, as I would like to say, by way of California. It's okay, everybody. I know we're on the East Coast, but you know, there's more places. The West does exist. It's it's okay. Professor and I were talking earlier about how much uh, weather has been going on, and New Mexico's been getting a lot of snow, <laughs> and uh, they welcome it. Well, you can take some of the moisture that we're getting here in North Carolina, because as a New Mexico boy, I have not seen this much moisture probably in my entire life. We, Stephen, we will take it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, the Southwest, we need our water. Yeah, so yeah. that's uh, we'll take everything that we can get. Thank you very much for joining us uh, on this episode of the Campbell Law Reporter. Uh, we've been talking about Congress and just the world that we live in, and and the news, how people get it, and is Congress broken? I want to talk about just we've seen some very historical things in Congress the last few years, specifically. We saw impeachment 1.0. We now just saw impeachment 2.0. We saw a member of Congress get stripped of their assignment on committees. Is it too far-fetched to think that somebody may be removed from Congress? Like, I, I, what do you think? You've, you're the expert here. Too far-fetched. I Probably 10 years ago, I would have answered uh, yes. But the based on what we were just what you and I were just talking about Stephen and this new reality that American politics is sort of situated in and this questioning of basic facts or how outlandish a lot of behaviors become not just among the American you know media landscape with you know with Fox News and MSNBC just trying to outdo each other in theater every single night but now it's actually found its way into the US Congress so I would I would answer that no I, it's probably not an unrealistic thing for us to expect in the next decade or so a member of Congress to be removed and yeah you're exactly right we just saw a freshman member of Congress Marjorie Taylor Greene get a get stripped of her committees by the entire House now the thing that makes this sort of interesting that sort of incredibly interesting is that if this was the House of Representatives House of Representatives as a unit as a chamber doing it, of course was mostly Democrats who voted but Democrats control the House. The thing that makes it unique is that it's usually the parties who are regulating their own backyard, taking care of their own backyard. So Nancy Pelosi gave the Republican Party an opportunity to take care of this themselves, and they when they opted not to, then the entire House stepped up. That's that was sort of a that's an escalation, and that's why all of a sudden when things like that happen, when those es- those moments of escalation happen, like when Harry Reid removed the filibuster from lower federal courts, not Supreme Court, right, but lower federal court appointments and confirmations back in the early 2000s. That was an escalation. 
Okay, so and so then these ex- escalation after escalation then tends to, turns into this tit for tat strategy where now as I sit as I as I sit here and you and I chat, having gone through what we just went through with the stripping of of committees in in an order from the chamber of the entire House of Representatives, then it's not without yeah, it's absolutely reasonable for us for you and I and your listeners to expect that over the next decade it will happen to somebody else because of this moment of ex- escalation. And I think that that's one of the reasons that Democrats went through the impeachment proceedings with President Trump too, is that I think I think more than anything, it was out of anger and probably fear. And you saw, you certainly saw a lot of emotion, more emotion than I've seen ever, certainly more emotion than we saw in impeachment, as you call it, 1.0 and in Clinton's impeachment. We saw the real raw emotion, tears and real you know, recounting a fear from the floor of the, of the Senate, from House managers in particular. And so those sorts of moments then, as they become more raw, it, it just, it's sort of impeachment 1.0 makes impeachment 2.0 a little bit more likely. But the message that Democrats seem to me seem to be sending to all, Demo- to, and not just Democrats, there are seven Republicans, to all presidents is you can't get away with everything or anything in the last two weeks of office, right? That you're still going to be held accountable after even after you leave office. I'd like to get your input on Trump was out of office during the impeachment 2.0. I've heard plenty of legal analysis on constitutionality of it. From a scholarly standpoint, what can you say to give a little bit more insight from your opinion? I think, yeah, you certainly, you have access probably to to some constitutional law experts that would be far better to ask as far as the constitutionality of that. And of course, the Senate Came to, came to their own their own determination, but I think from a political standpoint, the thing that that strikes me as as really interesting is that it's is is though are are those seven Republicans. This was a relatively easy decision for the Democrats to make, and by easy I mean if you're if you're worried about losing your base and you want to send a message to your left and by the way anybody left of center like any any Democrat for that matter, then yeah. You're gonna you're gonna go through impeachment 2.0. It just seemed like it was, in fact, maybe the only cost to the Democrats would be that it delayed President Biden's platform and agenda by a week or two, if not longer. I mean, he still has confirmations to get through. He wanted to get through the stimulus package. You know, there are all sorts of things that he wanted to get through Senate, but they were otherwise busy. However, this, the Republicans and those seven Republicans in particular that voted in favor of impeachment. Now, I, I was guessing three to five, and I was surprised by the additional two. And that was telling. I mean, that was the most votes against in favor of impeachment, 57, than any president ever received. So while we were still pretty far away from the from the 66, 67 that they needed, it was it's as close as we as the Senate has ever gotten. And yeah, I think and that in itself is telling. And I and to kind of bring it home on on North Carolina aspect, Senator Burr was one of those guilty votes. From my background, it was intriguing from a campaign standpoint. Because he has nothing to lose. Guess why? He's not running for election again. Exactly. And so he can make that decision. Now, other stuff has happened in in regards to the political aspect, but that's what makes this so intriguing is that these bodies that have, they have their constitutional laid out rules, but the things that are outside of that, they also have the constitutional power to make their own rules for their own body. And I think that kind of how, that's kind of how these things play in to it. And I don't think a lot of people are thinking about the campaign aspect. And if you don't mind, Stephen, let me jump in because you just said something really, really important, really important. And it's that that these fight over rules, and this is happening with impeachment all the way down to voter ID laws at the state level, even including redistricting, whether you have an open or closed primary. And with this impeachment discussion we got wrapped into, is it constitutional or not? It's like, senators don't care. They do not care whether it's, it's constitutional or not. And they might talk about them caring, but what drove the decision as to whether or not they determined to, in their minds, whether it was constitutional or not, wasn't their understanding of of the constitution or constitutional law. It was the understanding that they have of their own backyard. It was Am I going to get nuked when I'm up again? exactly right. And that is, and, and my point as to why Congress is not broken, by the way, some of your listeners might actually, this is, now bear with me, because this is the logic, is that, is that I want, and I think we want a Congress that were members of Congress do seek re-election because that's what ensures this line of accountability. And that's what actually gets us towards a more representative body. And so the argument that 
members of Congress are constantly seeking re-election. And that, and it's under that assumption and under that guise that actually then is how they create rules in the institution, is how you end up with a more representative institution to begin with. So it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's also really important for us to recognize that as much as we started, we heard debates over the constitutionality, that was all just theater. All, all this is, and all that impeachment, an impeachment is not a legal proceeding. An impeachment is a political proceeding. Okay, yeah. and that's what and, and what drives what drove those votes was an electoral consideration by every single one of those members of the Senate. And I do think that one out of those seven Republicans has a legitimate worry uh, when it comes to campaigns, and that would be Senator Mitt Romney. I think he's going to be personally in trouble. No, you know, I, yeah, you and I, I think I, I kind of disagree with that. You're going to disagree. Like, okay. I do. Yeah, I think like Mitt Romney, the Utah Republican is different than the, than the rest of the nation. And and I, my sense is that Mitt Romney won a lot of, and I haven't seen the, I haven't seen the polls on this, but I'm sure the polls exist. But based on the early, early polls, like coming out of his, coming out of, you know, it's all the, out of like the 2020 presidential election that I saw how, how Utah went. I think there's every, I think Utah is more of a Mitt Romney state than it is a Trump state. And that you can't say that I would, for a I lot would of states agree across with the that. US. I would agree with that. I, I, I do think that for sure. I just, there's a gut feeling in me that people are going to be mad and almost going to be like, can we have Orrin Hatchback? Orrin, he's been around there for a while. <laughs> right. Well, we're kind of like alluding to campaigns and money and all these things about Congress that I have asked, is it broken? The impeachment stuff, that's all political. Yeah, there's those, the constitutional rules and, and laws that go into it. It's all about campaigns and how yeah. These representatives are representing their uh, constituents. So you told me when I was a young undergrad, and uh, who would have thought that I'd still be in school? To, you know, <laughs> tell me um, I know that's how I felt too. You told me this great phrase that I use all the time: "People like their representative, but hate Congress." Do you think? that campaigns and Citizens United specifically contributes more to that hate of Congress or more to that love of their representative? That's a great question. And so, and, and the phenomenon that you're, that you're referring to is called Fenno's paradox. And it's the idea that, yeah, that we much, we, we actually have much higher approval of our individual members of Congress than we do of Congress as an institution. In fact, the numbers consistently bear this out. You look at any poll and, and approval of Congress is like in 12% or 14%, whatever it is today. But at, at the constituents in a particular district or state do, I mean, the approval ratings of the senators and members of the House have in their own state or district is way higher than that. It's usually above 50%. So there's a big gap between the two. And, and that's, that's Fenno's paradox named after Professor Fenno, who's just this legendary, least legendary in the political science world, uh, scholar of, of the U.S. Congress. So the question then is, you know, what does that mean? What are the implications of that? And actually, it does sort of uh, explain a lot about how how Congress itself, you know, you have these re-election rates uh, in 95 percent. You know, so many people hate Congress, and yet we return our incumbents back to Congress at a 95 percent rate. And it happened again in 2020. Now, a lot of that 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 number is so often inflated because if members of Congress are expecting a tough re-election fight, they'll retire before it gets there. And we're seeing a lot of retirements heading into 2022 as well. And we so, saw a lot of Republican gains, which was exactly. was not expected. I would I would assume you were quite shocked to see that. Yeah, no, there was, yeah, we we were expecting, we meaning political scientists seemed to be expecting a, um, that seemed to be what we were expecting, a, a blue wave in 2020 that just didn't happen. And, and so you had it, you, know, you had Republicans gaining tons of seats, way more than certainly what they were, they were expected to do in the House of Representatives and doing that really, to, really well in the states too, in state legislatures. I, and I didn't mean to, to cut you off there. Do you think that with the Republicans gaining the seat, that goes to what we were talking about earlier on that we're not too super polarized and it's more of the, the, the one bell curve and not two little mini ones? That, that has something to do with it, but it really what it, what it, and it goes back to these, we were talking about the rules of the game and institute, we call these the institutions. And the, the bottom line is that how we elect the president 
is different than how we elect the House of Representatives. There's just a different set of voters that we count. And it's really complicated to think about it, but it is, but the way that the presidential vote aggregates up had Biden winning the electoral college votes because he picked up some really critical new states like Arizona and Georgia and others, right? But then when you get down to the district level, the Republicans still have an advantage across the country. And they have an advantage for two reasons. First of all, there's something that's just much more, there's something organic about the way that in, that Republican voters are distributed across the US. They're just efficiently distributed. You have Democrats wasting tons of votes in these really highly urban areas and particular states. And Republicans are just spread out pretty evenly, particularly around, around these rural areas. You can see it in the county breakdown of Absolutely. the blue-red blue, county. That's exactly right. And then what ends up happening is, is so there's this, so it's that gives them a slight advantage in the House, structurally speaking, a huge advantage in the Senate, right? So you think about how many, and then also, by the way, a built-in advantage in the Electoral College. So if you think about how many votes was required for Democrats in Senate races just to get to 50-50, and then how many votes it required to for Biden to win these close races in these all these states. And remember, the Electoral College, while the Electoral College count was was wide, the the how they how Biden got there was really tight. <laughs> so you had these recounts and all these things happen in these really tight races like Georgia, again, in North Carolina, by the way, which won mm-hmm. Trump. But but so you look at the Electoral College, it's like, yeah, Biden won comfortably, but he didn't. He really yeah. didn't. And it just speaks to how you win. You Biden can win 81 million votes and still almost lose. And it speaks to how much of a structural advantage Republicans have when it comes to how their distrib- how their population is distributed. But then that goes back to our original point about how America is changing. And re- Republicans better be watching, the Republican Party better be watching their backyards once again because of these demographic shifts through migration and immigration, because that number looks to be changing. But to answer, to get one more thing is really important because this control over the state legislatures is making going to make a huge difference come 2022 because of redistricting. So the literature, and remember, if you remember the classes, I don't know if you think back to the classes that when you were at UNM, but the literature is pretty clear that redistricting does not explain the rise in polarization. It does not explain the rising re-election rates over the last 20 or 30 years. You just can't do it. There, just, it. there are just too many other things that are much more important that were happening. So these things aren't manufactured. They're not. And, and by the way, the great evidence of this is that counties are becoming as polarized, that is, as homogenous as districts are have, and have been. And we don't redistrict counties. So there's something happening, once again, that goes back to immigration and migration and partisan sorting and electoral sorting, all these things that are happening organically that's leading to it. However, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, all these, and even Texas, where Republicans picked up state legislative seats by a big mark in, 20, in 2020 will make a difference at the margins for those states. And, and help them build it. Yeah. yeah. People do not understand, not out of intellectual ability, by just sheer awareness on how redistricting is so important. Who has control politically? Because guess who gets to navigate the ship? The one who's in power. And if you're conveniently in power around the decade that the new count has to happen, and you're going to take those numbers and then you get to redraw the map. You just get you just have a little bit more in your play, and yeah. uh, um, that's right. And actually, we're going to experience it here in New Mexico. Is that I, you know, we uh, our our we have three we're three districts. New Mexico has three House districts, and traditionally we have two Democratic districts and one Republican district. But the Democrats still control the state legislature, and the and a Republican challenger beat a Democratic incumbent in Southern New Mexico. And Southern New Mexico, parts of Southern New Mexico, if any, if your listeners are familiar with it, looks and feels a lot like. Texas. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, yeah, it's oil and gas and it's rural and a lot of hunters and, and it's about gun rights and it's about protecting, you know, private land, but also this really interesting alliances with public land. And it was a really tight race between the democratic ch- incumbent and Republican challenger. But my point is that all it would take is maybe a few tweaks in the lines on how that district is drawn to make, to give the Democrat for 2022 or 2024 a slight advantage. And I would be willing to bet that that that's going to happen. Oh, totally. And, and it could be a a, a thing like Arizona experienced with uh, a lot of their redistricting that's going to be tied up in the courts. And that's just going to, that's just how it's going to happen. Professor, I know you're, uh, 
you're a busy guy. And I really appreciate uh, the time that you spent with us to close out here. Me and you could talk about this for a long time. At Campbell Law, we specifically like to talk about leading with purpose. I just, what does leading with purpose mean to you? You've had to change how you teach during a pandemic. You've had to teach during the chaos of 2020. What does leading with purpose mean to you? And how can people apply that to the political realm? Let me actually rephrase that last part of your question, because I don't know if speaking to and leading with purpose in the political realm is as important to me as leading with purpose in the teaching realm. And I would say that I've probably, I've learned more life lessons in three, doing three things in my life, particularly in the last 20 years that actually speak more to your question than, than maybe what my understanding of American politics is. And that is fathering and that is coaching and teaching. And there are so many, there's so many ways in which coaching tennis or youth soccer and parenting my 15 year old and 12 year old, and then also teaching help actually you know, help me under, do a better job in each one of those three arenas. And so when I hear the words leading with purpose, I feel like that my purpose is, is to help first and foremost students, young athletes, and my children identify passion and identify interests. So if I'm leading you to identify a question as an example of teaching, a question that you find really interesting through a brainstorming session, or if I'm leading you to want to come to class, or if I'm wanting you, or if I'm leading you to stay in school or to take that LSAT, even though maybe your parents or maybe your own insecurities is not, they're not, you know, you're not, you just don't feel confident enough to do it. If I'm leading you to help you get there, then I've done my job. If I'm leading as my children, and if I'm leading them to their, to reach their potential when it comes to identifying interests, to working hard, to helping others, to being friendly, to doing all these sorts of things that I really value, that I'm doing my job as leading with purpose. And then also the same thing when I'm coaching too. It's like, it's like when I think about teaching students and if, and if students are, are acting up in class and I need to come down and I was like, listen, everybody will snap too. That's when I'll, I'll kind of, I'll go into my coaching mode, more than my teaching mode. It's like, hey guys, let's go, get, let's get back together. Let's, let's talk, right? let's, let's get back into it. And so the idea of, of leading with purpose would be setting an example, motivating, it would be arriving discipline, arriving prepared, all these sorts of things that have helped me, I think, become a better father, a better coach, and a better teacher. That is uh, awesome to hear. And I really appreciate all the things that you've taught me in my undergrad. I don't know if I told you in my adolescence, I would say. I know I have been very thankful. And even in my legal education career now, I am thankful more than I can say for your advisement, your scholarship, and uh, just overall your friendship. So thank you very much for taking the time out of your busy time to be unfortunately on another Zoom call. <laughs> and uh, all right. um, worth it. Guys, Michael, Roca, look them up because you're just going to love it. And thank you very much. And I think cool we'll thing. probably do this again because we can talk for a whole We can talk forever at any time. Yeah, I had a great time. Great to see you. Great to talk to you, Stephen. Thank you for listening to the Campbell Law Reporter podcast. We look forward to you joining us every other Wednesday at 7 a.m. for a new episode, which can be accessed through your preferred podcasting listening platform.